Ecclesiastes chapter 10, if you'd like to locate that in your Bible. In a few moments, we'll be reading the entire chapter together. As I've mentioned previously, this section of Ecclesiastes chapter 7 to 12, the second half of the book, speaks to us about the topics of wisdom and foolishness. And, and those words will be used, or the words that you'll hear are the wise and the fool. Um, but today in chapter 10, uh, Solomon takes a little different approach and begins to use parables. If you're familiar with Solomon and his writings, particularly um, uh, Proverbs, you know that Proverbs is made up of uh, just a slew of Proverbs, uh, general observations about life, not guarantees, not promises, but Proverbs are statements that come from the general observation of life and are generally true but there are exceptions to the rules in all of those statements in Proverbs. One of the most famous ones, maybe to parents, is train up a child in the way he should go, and when he's old, he won't leave it. That's a wonderful statement. It is a proverb. It is not a promise. And uh, Solomon was looking at his world around him and and learning from it and saying that where parents invest in these ways, Generally speaking, the children will follow in those paths later on in life. Uh, unfortunately, in our time and age, people have taken that to be a promise and get mad at God when their kids don't turn out the right way. And uh, <laughs> there's a lot of definitions about what the right way is, too. But here he is using poetry and he's using parables to make his point in chapter 10 and then for part of chapter 11. And specifically in chapter 10, in his parables, he's going to choose three animals to illustrate his point. There are three animals here from the animal kingdom. The fly, dead flies in particular, uh, and included with that concept would be maggots. So flies, a serpent, a couple of serpents actually, and a bird, a little birdie. So this, I don't tell you the titles of my sermons very often, but this one is dead flies, serpents, and little birdies. And around those three illustrations, he's going to make observations about the wise and the foolish, things for us to learn. So I invite you to follow along in your Bibles as I read from Ecclesiastes, the entire chapter, begin in verse, in verse 1 and read on through down to verse 20. Dead flies make the perfumer's ointment give off a stench, so a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. A man's heart inclines him to the right, but a fool's heart to the left. Even when the fool walks on the road, he lacks sense, and he says to every, everyone that he is a fool. If the anger of the ruler rises against you, do not leave your place, for calmness will lay great offenses to rest. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, as it were an error proceeding from the ruler. Folly is set in many high places, and the rich sit in a low place. I have seen slaves on horses and princes walking on the grounds like, ground like slaves. He who digs a pit will fall into it, and a serpent will bite him who breaks through a wall. 
He who quarries stones is hurt by them, and he who splits logs is endangered by them. If the iron is blunt and one does not sharpen the edge, he must use more strength. But wisdom helps one to succeed. If the serpent bites before it is charmed, there is no advantage to the charmer. The words of a wise man's mouth win him favor, but the lips of a fool consume him. The beginning of the words of his mouth is foolishness, and the end of his talk is evil madness. A fool multiplies words, though no man knows what is to be, and who can tell him what will be after him? The toil of a fool wearies him, for he does not know the way to the city. Woe to you, O land, when your child, when your king is a child, and your princes feast in the morning. Happy are you, O land, when your king is the son of nobility and your princes feast at the proper time for strength and not for drunkenness. Through sloth the roof sinks in and through indolence the house leaks. Bread is made for laughter and wine gladdens life and money answers everything. Even in your thoughts do not curse the king nor in your bedroom curse the rich. For a bird of the air will carry your voice, or some winged creature tell the matter. These are the words of our God. Whoever is wise, let him attend to these things. Let us consider the steadfast love of the Lord. Hopefully, as you read along with me, and probably as you read along with me, you were thinking, does this even make any sense? And I feel your pain. Um, uh, but you were able to, as you read through it, identify animals, the, the uh, flies, the serpent, and little birdies, if you didn't pick up on it, carry messages. They're, they're messengers who carry messages that we don't want made public. We actually use that phrase today, and I'll talk a little bit later. But while we may use the little birdie phrase to some degree today, these other two uh, illustrations of the flies in this, but the application that he pulls out is timeless. And, and as I said, as you read this, it may not have made much sense to you. And as I said, last time we were in Ecclesiastes, there's a lot of different opinions on how to approach this passage and to teach from it. Um, and I picked what I thought was correct, not what somebody said, but I tried to approach it with these three uh, hooks that he has in there, the flies, the serpent, and the birds, and tried to, I'm gonna try and bring out what he's talking about with each of those. What I will say in advance is I'm not gonna deal with every statement that Solomon made here. I'm gonna just try to deal with the big ideas of those three illustrations. So there's some things in here that you'll have to go back and feed back into that uh, structure and hopefully it'll work as you do that. The first illustration that we have are the dead flies. In Solomon's day, the manufacturing process wasn't as sanitary as it is today in our culture. If you go to some, what we would call developing countries, or sometimes we talk about third world countries, and you watch, you walk into their bakeries, which I've done, or you walk into their kitchens of the restaurants, or, um, just see how things go behind the scenes, and sometimes it's not even behind the scenes, it's very much out in the open, uh, you start to feel like you're not sure you want to eat any food. 
you know, it's just, it's just not sanitary. I was in, we were talking about Fiji in the uh, 11 o'clock hour this morning, but my mind went back to Fiji and they took me to the nicest restaurant in this town, Nandi, and, um, and it was an Indian restaurant. And, and the decor was much nicer than most of the restaurants, but uh, we were sitting there and talking, waiting for them to bring us our water and things. And I looked down and a roach was crawling across the plate of one of the people at my table. And I just watched it crawl across that plate. And I have two insects that I despise, spiders and roaches. I just can't stand roaches. And spiders, there is no small spider in this world. They are all huge. You just need glasses to see them for what they really are. And they're mean and nasty. So I don't like spiders and don't like roaches. And this roach is crawling across this guy's plate. So I thought, I'm just gonna look somewhere else. And I looked down and the wall next to us where the windows were, there were roaches crawling along the floor back and forth. And, and I, I just sat there and I thought, don't say anything, this isn't your country, don't be a jerk, just sit here and be quiet. And the guy that had the roach crawling across his plate, his name was Jonathan Sharma, he's actually spoken here in the past a couple times, if you've been around long enough to remember him. But uh, he, he looked down and he saw the roach. And Jonathan is from Fiji, but was, well, he's actually from India and then they moved to Fiji, and then his mom took him to England, uh, London, where he was raised. So Jonathan knew both worlds, so to speak. And Jonathan looked down and said, oh, there's a roach, and he flicked it off. And, and I was like, yeah, I, I saw that. And he said, hmm, this isn't good. I'm, I'm gonna talk to the guy. So when, the, when they brought the water, he asked for the owner to come out, and the owner came out, and he said, I had a roach on my plate. And I'm thinking, do we even want to eat here? Because what's it like back there? And the guy, the owner was like, oh, I'm so sorry. And he brought him a new plate. And that's all they did. That was it. They just gave him a new plate. I've been in, in Russia, in Moscow, and I've been in Ukraine. And in Ukraine, um, in Kiev, Ukraine, which is their most civilized part of the country, um, we got in early in the morning and traveling there and the guy asked me if I was hungry and he said, would you like some bread and some meat? And I said, sure. And, uh, and so he went over and on the counter was already a little thing of bread and a little thing of ham sitting on the counter. And he sliced off a piece of each, who knows how long it had been sitting there because he waited for me in the airport for three hours. But before he sliced it, he flicked a couple roaches off the top of the food that was just sitting out there. So, you know, we live in an environment that's much more sanitary, but especially back at the time of Solomon, sanitary was probably not much of a word in their culture. And so it's hard for us to relate to ointment having dead flies and maggots in it. But the picture that Solomon is drawing out here is of perfume. It's not ointment like medical ointment, it's perfume like a woman would put on herself before going out for a big evening or during the day for something. And, and the picture is, remember the story in the gospel of the woman who anointed Jesus and she had an alabaster flax, uh, flask, remember that story? And she broke it and she poured out the ointment on Jesus. That's what he's talking about here. He's talking about a, a, an, an oil that would 
turn solid to a certain extent or could be made liquid again with, with heat. And, um, and it was mixed with some natural scents and, and then put in some kind of an ornamental flask. He's talking about something high-end here in their culture. The alabaster flask of ointment that was poured out on Jesus, the perfume, they tell us that that was worth a year's wages in their time frame. The average worker it was worth a year's wages. So there was the sacrifice of value plus the sacrifice of the oil on Jesus. Um, and it was supposed to smell good. So let's just imagine that the lady with the alabaster, alabaster flask, that's hard to say on a Sunday morning when you're tired, but he, if you could imagine the woman coming over with this precious thing that she has and breaking it open and goes to pour out on Jesus the ointment and it's full of dead flies and maggots. And as Solomon says, it's a stench. It produces a stench. The word in the Hebrew can mean an abomination. It means it smells really, really, really bad because everything is just rotted and died inside of that ointment. Imagine Judas's response if it had been stinky instead of how could you waste this money? He probably would have been saying other things about how Jesus smelled at that moment and it would have really destroyed the moment. And Solomon says foolishness is like dead flies in ointment. You open that up, you're expecting it to smell nice. It's very expensive. It's, it's from a well-known manufacturer, a, a merchant in town, and you open it up and it smells like somebody died in your room. That's what Solomon is trying to communicate to us. His point is really simple. It doesn't take, just like it doesn't take a lot of flies to ruin the ointment, it doesn't take a lot of foolishness to ruin a lot of wisdom. You can be a very wise person. You can be a very wise planner. You could have lived a very wise life and a little bit of foolishness does to that life of wisdom as far as how people who perceive you. A little bit of foolishness does to that life of wisdom what a few dead flies who laid, maggots, laid eggs and had maggots hatch out does to perfume. It just wipes it out. Nobody wants to buy anything from that merchant anymore, and no one wants to hear anything from you anymore. Because a little bit of, little bit of foolishness ruins a lot of wisdom. So I thought about that. I thought as Christians, we can quickly ruin our reputations through a seemingly innocent, foolish choice. For some, that happens in youth. For some, that happens in middle age. For some, that happens in, in older life. Solomon is encouraging us to pursue wisdom as a way of life so that our reputation and our testimonies as Christians are not damaged by stupid, foolish choices. I've known of churches that have been seriously damaged because of a few people who act in foolish self-exaltation. And in the end, what was once attractive and beautiful can quickly become like fly-infested perfume, repulsive. 
being at the college, I had a lot of contact with pastors. I heard so many horror stories about churches that just imploded because of one guy or two guys or one woman or two women or a mixture of both. And the church just ended up collapsing because of that situation. I've been in a church as a deacon where a pastor's wife got jealous of another pastor's wife because people liked the other pastor's wife better. The other pastor's wife was very gregarious, outgoing. We always talked about her being like a, a butterfly. She would just go from person to person like a butterfly on flowers and be encouraging people and, and uplifting people. And this pastor's wife was um, a, a much more of an introvert and quiet, and she was a good person. They were both good people. But the one one day got jealous of the other one. And it ended up almost completely blowing the church apart. All kinds of meetings, all kinds of discussions as a deacon. Pastors put it on us to decide which pastor was going to stay. Which is just, and they're both friends. And it was just like, you're out of your mind, you're crazy. It was a sad time. It was, it was awful. It was the church that we loved and were part of. But one person got foolish and almost blew the place apart. We need to be people who live wisely so that foolishness has no place to destroy. The second animal Solomon offers to warn us of the dangers of foolish thinking and living is the serpent. The serpent. He talks about the serpent twice. Once is in relation to a snake charmer and the other one is in relation to a breaking into a wall. Now, before we talk about what he is trying to get across here, it's important to realize anytime you're reading the Bible, and you come across uh, anything about snakes, including sea snakes or dragons. When you read about dragons in the Bible, it's talking about snakes, a serpent-like creature. When the Bible talks about Leviathan who lives in the waters, that's a sea snake. That's a massive snake. It's a sea snake that lives. I'm not even going to try Sally and the seashore thing this morning. Uh, but, but anytime you come across snakes in the Bible, the writer of the Bible wants you to think of Satan. That first moment in the Garden of Eden when the serpent came to Eve. From there on out, anytime you come across serpents, it is just part of the thread of the scriptures that a serpent is telling you something about Jesus, I mean Satan, not Jesus, something about Satan. And he wants you, the writer wants you to remember that Satan seemed very wise. He came to Eve and he reasons with her and he seems very intelligent and he seems very wise and he seems to offer her a good thing. And he starts with, has God really said? Did he really, did God really say that? Huh. Well, that just seems odd that God would say that. And he begins to reason with Eve in a way that's destructive. 
to turn her heart against God and to make her think that there's something better that doesn't involve God. It's not wrong to think through scripture and to think through your beliefs. But when Satan is part of it, he will be seeming to offer wise thinking. But in the end, he is about destruction. And here, Solomon wants us to understand that foolish thinking and living brings harm to those who pursue it. Overall, that's the picture here. And that that there is something from Satan that underlies it all. But again, there is this Hear this, hear what he says in this next section from the standpoint of foolish thinking and living brings harm to those who pursue it. He who digs a pit will fall into it. A serpent will bite him who breaks through the wall. Serpents would sleep in the walls of, the, of their homes and buildings and when somebody broke into it and, and just reached down in there to, to try and pull bricks away, It often get bit by by serpents. He who quarries stones is hurt by them. This is the fool, because he's not cautious. He who splits logs is endangered by them. He doesn't think in ways that are wise, and thus he acts without caution. He digs a pit to entrap his his enemy, but ends up trapped himself. He's got something against this other person, the fool does, And instead of dealing with it or just letting it go, he gets a grudge and wants to try and trap or catch this person who he believes has harmed him. But in the end, he gets caught in his his trap. As I said earlier, he acts without caution. He gets bitten when he reaches into the snake's lair. He's lazy in verse 10, and therefore his work is made harder. He doesn't sharpen his blade. If you... If you're a person who has split wood, how many of you have split wood by hand? It is hard work. I used to have, our house in Tama Toledo, we had two wood stoves, and that was how we would heat our house every winter. So I would usually have a couple of cords of wood out back that I had, at first was doing hand splitting, and then a friend of mine had bought a power splitter, and I started using that, but that's still hard work. And there's certain woods that just cleave and, and go real quickly. I sometimes would get stuff like elm. And if you've ever ch- split wood, elm is a killer because it just pulls and frays and doesn't split cleanly. So it's just the height of stupidity and foolishness not to keep your blade sharp. You just kept the sharpener there so that after a few logs, you'd sharpen it again and it would go through. But the fool's too lazy to do that. And he makes his work harder. He lives for partying in verse, um, towards the end of the chapter here. Bread is made for laughter and wine gladdens life and money answers everything. Uh, Solomon is not saying that's true. He's saying that's the thinking of of the fool. This fool is a person who lives for partying. Says, uh, he says, uh, happy are you, O land, when your king is the son of the nobility and your princes feast at the proper time for strength and not for drunkenness. He has the idea here of princes who are fools who sit around partying all day, who sit around stuffing their mouths all day, and their attitude is they live for wine, they live for good food, and they burn their money to provide it. In the meantime, the fool's roof is sinking in and his house is leaking. 
The fool also believes that he can charm or control the snake of foolishness. Yet he is destroyed by the snake. The language there of the, of the charmed snake is one actually in the Hebrew that speaks of a snake that's not charmed or can't be charmed, but the fool thinks he can charm what can't be charmed. And in the end, he's bitten by it and killed. Solomon advises that the one who pursues wisdom has an advantage over the fool as her life is one of relative safety and productivity. And then the third illustration is that of the little bird, as Solomon talks to us about the words that come out of our mouths. We find much in scripture about the tongue. I don't like reading about the tongue in the Bible because especially as a younger man, I had a problem with my tongue. I, you've been around long enough, those of you who know me well know that I'm sarcastic. There's a few of you who have known me for almost 20 years and I am a sarcastic person. I've had people tell me that that's not godly. I haven't found it in the Bible yet, so I have just ignored that. But I, I like to speak in sarcasm. My, my problem is I do it with people who don't know me well. And then Terry will say, they didn't know you well enough for you to say what you said. And sometimes I'll joke about something and they'll just be standing there looking at me and Terry will tell me afterwards, they didn't understand you well enough to get the joke. And so I've been trying not to joke as much, and I've been trying not to be as sarcastic as I used to be, but it's, it's still there. Um, and sometimes in my sarcasm, sometimes in my teasing, things come out of my mouth that should not have come out of my mouth and hurt people in ways that I didn't even intend or realize at the moment. But Solomon talks a lot about the tongue. The New Testament talks a lot about the tongue. And in verses 11 and 12, as he talks to us about the words that come out of our mouth, he begins his argument by establishing a better way. Instead of talking about what the fool does first, he talks about the wise man first. The better way is the words of a wise man's mouth win him favor versus the way of the fool, but the lips of a fool consume him. Solomon's idea here in this passage is that the mouth of a fool from beginning to end spouts foolishness. What comes out of him is foolishness because what's inside of him is foolishness. The fool speaks with authority and with many words about things he doesn't really understand and unwittingly encourages evil behavior with his words. If you've ever been listening to someone on the news or an important person out there in some organization that's influencing society or radio talk show hosts or news or politicians, you will often hear them say things that you will sit there and think, why did he even say that? Why did she say that? Have you had that experience? That, that was just... All that does is get people worked up and angry. What's the point of even saying that? Why did they need to? It's because in their core, they're fools. I'm not saying everyone in those categories are fools, but when you hear things that you're just going, I can't believe they said that, it's because there's foolishness inside. 
and the lips of the fool ultimately consume him. I, I, I was listening to someone this week who is a well, he's, he was a well-known anchor on one of the news networks, and he was talking about the, sh the beating up of this guy that just happened this last, this last week. And I, to me, I, it's just like, what happened with these five police officers that their brains just shut off and they went after this guy for really, he was trying to cooperate. And they beat him up and they killed him. But one guy um, who is now head of some think tank and he was again an anchor on one of the news networks, he made the statement that it was that what those Memphis police officers did was racist. And I read, the, I read it and I thought, they're black. They're all black and the victim was black. So where do you get racism in there? And his logic was that black people have been so put down by white people for so long that they've now reached a point where they hate themselves and they hate other blacks. And therefore, it was an act of racism because of white influence. And I sat there and I thought, that's foolishness. That's just foolishness. No, it, it was not an act about race. It was an act about five men who have something incredibly wrong inside of them, regardless of their skin color, who beat up and killed an innocent man. That's what it's about. And that's the way a fool behaves. They think in a way that drives patterns that result in things that consume themselves and others, and then also there are those who talk about it who are fools. But I've also seen similar things go on in the opposite direction. And people, in conservative people encouraging other conservative people to do acts of violence because we've got to get our country back on the right track. And that's foolish talking coming from a foolish thinking that's inside of us. As I think about a lot of the social media interactions out there, I think of this passage, the words of a wise man's mouth win him favor, but the lips of a fool consume him. I had somebody try to friend me yesterday on Facebook. I'm old enough that I still use Facebook. But somebody tried to friend me, and so the first thing I do when somebody tries to friend me, whether I've been good friends with them in the past or not, is I go to their wall and I look at what they've posted. And this guy had one rant after another on there that I just clicked no. I just didn't even want to engage because it's just spouting off foolishness. And in verses 16 to 17, we see the outcome of his thinking and speaking. This, the words of this fool, the outcome of his speaking and thinking, ultimately is an upside-down culture that encourages poor leaders and a lack of self-control. The fool's thinking is corrupt, and the words he speaks are corrupting. And, and when Jesus speaks to the Pharisees and calls them a brood of vipers, he says, how can you speak good when you are evil, for out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks? If the abundance of the heart is gentleness and lowliness, if the abundance of the heart is patience and love and kindness, then there's going to be words that come out of us that reflect that. 
If the abundance of our heart is anger and jealousy and hatred, then the words that come out of our mouth are going to reflect that foolishness. And Solomon's last warning to the wise uses the illustration in verse 20 that is the one that I thought might be a little more common to our thinking. Even in your thoughts, do not curse the king, nor in your bedroom curse the rich. For a bird of the air will carry your voice, or some winged creature will tell the matter. We have a saying in our culture today, a little birdie told me. You guys ever heard that or used that? A little birdie told me. When we don't want to, res- we don't want to reveal our source, we say that. As parents... We've said, Terry and I have said that, I've said that to our kids a couple times. How did you know that? A little birdie told me. Who's the little birdie? I'm not telling you. But that's the, that's the illustration that Solomon is using here. A bird of the air will carry your voice or some winged creature will tell the matter. And what Solomon is saying to us in this case is the wise should be careful what they say even in confidence, because little birdies are apt to repeat our words in the wrong ears. You ever said something to someone in confidence and found out that it stayed in confidence for about five minutes before they told somebody else, and they told somebody else, and they told somebody else, and it gets back to the person that you were talking about, and then it gets traced back to you? Ever said something to someone in confidence and you walk away, and then you think, (laughs) I should not have told that person what I just told them. I sure hope it doesn't get out. Right or wrong, Solomon's not saying here that what you said was right or wrong necessarily. It's just you need to be careful what you say because it might get out. Little birdies are apt to repeat our words in the wrong ears. So he says, don't curse the king. Don't curse the rich, even when you think you're not being heard. And hearing all of this from Solomon, I think it would be normal for us to decide that we are going to avoid foolish thinking and foolish people. Have you seen people post or have somebody say, I'm getting rid of all the negative people in my life. I'm getting rid of all the negativity in my life, I'm getting rid of all the negative people in my life. Ever heard anybody say that or write that? And maybe you said that because we don't want negativity around us. But we as Christians do that too. We identify a group of people who, who are foolish and we say, not going to have anything to do with them anymore. And then this group of people over here they're foolish, or they make choices that we think are foolish, not going to have anything to do with it. And over here, and you know what you end up doing? Pretty soon you're inside of this little tiny box that you created, and you're the only one there, or maybe one or two of your friends. And we've isolated ourselves, and we've taken ourselves out of the culture and away from the society, and no longer have any influence, because our reaction is to get rid of all the negative people in our world. But the problem with that way of thinking is that we live in the rubble of Eden. 
under the sun, where everything is broken. And what we don't always recognize about living in the rubble of Eden is that we are actually part of the rubble of Eden. We like to think when we hear rubble of Eden of all the brokenness around us and we're having to navigate through this like apocalyptic picture in our mind. And Solomon's helping us as non-broken people to navigate through the brokenness. But the realization is that the brokenness started with Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve were the first broken things. They were the first ones to commit sin. It was them who began the brokenness in this world, and it was them that, that propagated, reproduced broken offspring. By one man, sin entered into the world, Adam. And therefore all die, because all have sinned. We cannot eliminate all the negative influences in our lives unless we kill ourselves. Because we are probably the greatest source of negativity in our world by how we perceive the things that are going on around us and how they affect us. By nature, we are all about us, and by nature, we are sinners. We, if we're saved, we're saints, but we're sinning saints. And that negativity exists in us. We are, again, actually part of the rubble of Eden, which means that foolish thinking is all around us and often unrecognized within us. So I was studying this passage. Some of you are going to remember this. But there's a song from the 70s, which doesn't seem that long ago to me because I was in my teens in the 70s. But uh, for the rest of you that are younger, you're thinking, man, that's like 50 stinking years ago. He is really old. But there was a song from 1972 sung by a group called The Main Ingredient, and the song was called Everybody Plays the Fool. It may be hard, it may be cruel, but everybody plays the fool. All of us at some time act foolishly because all of us have problems with being fools inside. So the question then becomes, how should we respond to the truth Solomon has spoken to us about flies and serpents and birds? And as I thought about that question, there was a passage that came to my mind that we've looked at before, but I think it's good to look at this passage at least once a year and possibly every few months and probably every day. We should be thinking about this passage. And that passage is Ephesians 4. So I invite you to look at Ephesians 4. And, and what I want us to do with the rest of our time this morning is to think about how we interact, how we pursue the path of wisdom from a gospel-centered viewpoint. How do we pursue the path of wisdom from a new covenant viewpoint? 
And Ephesians 4, I think, speaks to that about as well as any. And we'll begin at the beginning of Ephesians 4. We're not going to read this whole passage. I'm just going to reference parts in here. And you can go back and read the rest. And if, if there is a passage to immerse yourself in and ask the Holy Spirit to do a work in you to make you more like Christ, Ephesians chapter 4 and parts of chapter and chapter 5, just Ephesians 4 and 5, you could just park there for the rest of your life and, and could continue working on becoming more like Jesus. But he starts in chapter 4. Paul says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And this calling refers to God's call of salvation through faith in Jesus and God's call to obediently follow Jesus as our Lord. And he goes on to say that we should do this, that we should, we should pursue this walk, this, this way of life, this path of wisdom, you could call it. He tells us to pursue it by living with all humility, gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, and an eagerness to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love, and an eagerness to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. If those were all we had to work on, we could occupy ourselves very well for the rest of our lives. But just, just to make it worse for you, there's a longer list that follows, okay? But that's the starting point. The way of wisdom, the way of life and thinking that pushes back on the foolishness that Solomon brings out is walking worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And this path of wisdom that we are called to pursue, and that is such an important word. That, that, that is an important word in Scripture, and it's an important word for us to remember. The path of wisdom we are called to pursue, this change in us, is not accomplished through avoidance of the negative or even through avoidance of the evil, but instead through the pursuit of an ongoing way of life an ongoing direction. And here's, here's one of the most important things I learned in my years, I've learned in my years as a Christian, as a son of God, is that life is not about trying to avoid things. Life is about pursuing. And when you pursue what God wants you to pursue, you will naturally not be you won't have to worry about avoiding things because they just kind of fall away in the rearview mirror. You cannot, you cannot see it as a pursuing Christ or pursuing Satan because they're not like two forks off the same road. Scripture speaks of when we're saved of repenting. We just talked about that word with our um, young men and women in the, in the immersion group. A couple of weeks ago, we talked about the word repent. 
And the word repent doesn't, mean, doesn't imply a choice between two forks, a fork in the road, two different paths coming off the same road. Repenting talks about you were going one way and you did a 180 and went the other way. So when we talk about the path of wisdom and the path of foolishness, we're talking about two opposite directions of life. When we talk about pursuing Christ-likeness or pursuing becoming more like Satan, we're talking about two opposite ways of life. So if I'm, I say that to make this point that to pursue Christ, to pursue holiness, to pursue righteousness is not about what we stop doing. It's about where we are going as people and what we are becoming as people. That is beyond the realization of being a sinner and needing Christ for my Savior. That has been the most important idea or concept that I have learned in my life. That it is about becoming like Christ. It is about pursuing. It is about walking in a direction. That's the Christian life. And I think too many Christians are absorbed with what we don't do. And we define ourselves by what we don't do. When I first came to Northbrook eight and a half years ago, I started talking to people. I started talking to the elders about, about Northbrook and the philosophy of Northbrook. I started talking to people at Northbrook. And, I would add, and, and at that point in time, Northbrook was made up of a lot of ex-fundamentalists. There were quite a few of them here and the elders and in the congregation. And as I talked with people and I'd say to them, tell me about Northbrook. What, what is Northbrook? What, what is Northbrook like? What is Northbrook about? What I would hear repeatedly is, well, we're not fundamentalists because we had all these ex-fundamentalists who I think maybe the Bard is the only ones left and they weren't even here when we came. Um, for some reason, I've scared off all the ex-fundamentalists. I'm not exactly sure what happened with that. I think, I think that, I don't know if that's a good thing or not. But that's what I heard. Repeatedly, I would hear that. We're not fundamentalists. Now, you're thinking, I never told you that. You didn't. Most of, I don't think anybody is here who told me that. But most of the time, Christians identify themselves or think of themselves in ways of what they don't do. Whereas the New Testament identifies Christians by what they do and how they think and what they are becoming. Which is what Ephesians 4 is all about. So he starts out with this walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And he throws out humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love and an eagerness to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. And again, we could stop there and, and we could just be done for today with those things and me asking you how you, how are those, how, how prevalent are those things on the radar of your life? But later in verse 23, he goes on to say this, be renewed in the spirit of your mind and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Verse 23 throws at us this idea of our mind being changed, which Romans 12, 1 and 2, be transformed by the renewing of your mind, 
is a similar idea, that renewing of our mind, it happens as we, if we spend time in other passages, that renewing of our mind is the influence of the word of God in our thinking through the power of the Holy Spirit. But I don't want to get stuck there this morning. Being renewed in the spirit of our minds is a direction to pursue. And then he says this, put on the new self. Earlier he said, put off the old self. And he says here, put on the new self. And putting off and putting on is the idea of clothing. It's a metaphor from clothing that we have clothing that that is not, is, not, is not in any way appropriate for us anymore as followers of Christ. And we have clothing that we are to put on that identifies us as followers of uh, Christ. In First in Peter, he writes and says, be clothed with all humility. And the word, the word there for clothed, the idea there is a garment which identifies you, like a baker wears an apron and a fireman wears his suit and his hat, a police officer wears his uniform with his badge. There, there are certain occupations that the clothing identifies what you do. And Peter says, clothe yourself with humility. In other words, when people see you, what they see is humility. You're identified by humility. Here, Paul is using a similar metaphor and says to put on the new self, which is created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So this argument that Paul brings forth here is just as we are to walk, which is an active choice, walk worthy. So again, an active choice to put on, to pursue, to become so righteous and holy in us that that is what identifies us. But again, that righteousness and holiness is not identified by what we don't do, but rather who we are and are we becoming like Jesus? We are not passive beings in the process of becoming wise and holy. We are to actively pursue being renewed in our minds and therefore acting in righteous and holy ways. Following this statement, Paul tells us how we will live as our minds are renewed. And again, this is, this is flowing out of this stuff from Solomon telling us that we should be wise and not foolish. To pursue a path of wisdom, not the path of foolishness. But Paul tells us how we will live when our minds are renewed and we learn first of all that we will be people of truth who pursue living in honesty with our neighbors. Put away falsehood. Let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. And if you are now asking yourself, well, who's my neighbor? There's a whole thing on that called the Good Samaritan. Everybody around you. We will be people who are not controlled by anger and do not hold grudges. Verse 26, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Paul is not saying that before you go to bed at night, you've got to right all the wrongs with everybody. So if you're a husband and wife and you're fighting or you're arguing or you're angry with one another, that you've got to resolve the situation before you go to bed at night. In fact, I think that's really bad advice that people give. What Paul is saying is that before you pillow your head at night, 
you resolve the anger inside of you. He's not saying resolve it with the people around you, but resolve the anger that's inside of you and don't let it go to a place where you begin to bear grudges against other people. Christ's likeness is you becoming the person that you are supposed to be, not being the Holy Spirit for everyone else around you and trying to force them to resolve situations and to deal with their anger. You resolve your anger before you go to bed at night. And I'll tell you, that's really hard when you can't resolve the situation, but you have to resolve your own anger inside and not bear grudges. We will be people who don't steal. I finished my taxes yesterday. It took me a total of eight hours over a few days to do my taxes. I can't tell you how many times I was tempted to cheat on something, to just not report that, or they don't need to know, or they'll never find this out. And maybe I'm the only bad person in the room, but it just is this temptation there because I'm sitting there thinking, they're already blowing so much money for such stupid things. What are they gonna care about this 10 bucks? And then I'm sitting there thinking, you're willing to sell your soul for 10 bucks? That's how cheap you are? That's all it costs is 10 bucks? So it's, it's not just doing the taxes, it's this whole thing going on inside of me while I'm doing them, but that's stealing. And, and Paul says we should be people who don't steal, but rather we work hard, which is where a lot of Christians stop in that passage. Don't steal, work hard. Yeah, I work hard. Well, read the rest of what he says there. Let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Boy, that's a kicker. Work hard so you can pursue the enrichment of others. Want me to stop? It doesn't get any better. It just doesn't get any better here. Be honest. With, your, with everybody around you, be honest. Don't be angry. Don't be controlled by it. Don't hold grudges. Don't be a person who is a thief or a cheat. Rather, work hard so you can pursue the enrichment of others. Paul goes on to say that we will not be people whose lips flow with words that tear others down and bring harm to their persons. But he says, instead, we will be a people who pursue a heart of love and gratefulness so that our gracious words build and encourage others. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. And with that, I'm going to announce the new name of our new small groups that I thought of while I was studying this passage, and that is B groups. Not the letter B, but the letters B-E, building and encouraging. Because that's what Ephesians 4 tells us to do. Be gracious people whose words build and encourage one another.
Terry said, well, they were C groups, so I guess we took a step up from C groups to B groups. And I said, yeah, but I don't think we're ever going to go to A groups. We're just going to be B, building and encouraging. That's what the whole framework of it is in our small groups, builders and encouragers. We try to think of gracious words to build and encourage others, and we are pursuing this way of life so that it becomes natural to us. I've, I've said many times, I think Christians too often nitpick at one another and are constantly thinking that loving one another means that we're constantly pointing out the flaws of each other. Because an honest friend, I mean, everybody wants a good friend who's an honest friend and tells them about their problems. And I just don't find that in the New Covenant. What I find in the New Covenant is building and encouraging. And, and I, I have tried to make it my practice and I, I say this not to build myself, but to try and encourage you that when, that when you come on Sunday morning or whenever we gather to, to find someone to go to them and say, you know what, I saw you do this or I heard you say this or, or whatever. And I just want to tell you that it, it showed Christ in your life to me. And I'm thankful for that. Affirming each other. Building and encouraging each other. Paul says also we will be people who seek through the Holy Spirit's power to eradicate wrath and slander and anger and desire for the harm of others. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. You say, so Paul's telling us there we shouldn't do this anymore and we need to avoid this and we need to stop. No, look at where he goes. Instead of being people who are constantly angry and offended and hoping that the person who hurt you will be hurt, he tells us to pursue forgiveness. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. That is one of the most difficult statements in Scripture. Be kind to each other and forgive each other the same way God forgave you? Do you rejoice in the fact that God has once for all justified you, that he has forgiven you of all your wrongs, past, present, and future? Do you celebrate that? Because if you love that thought and if you celebrate that, then Paul comes back to us with that and says, do the same thing for the people who are around you. Forgive even as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven you. There is nothing that escapes the parameters that Paul puts there. And be kind to one another. I, I, it saddens me because I feel like one of the things that we as Christians have lost in our homes and in our marriages, in our closest relationships, is being kind with one another. It saddens me that as a father, I struggle with being kind to my children. It's the reality of who we are, and it reveals what I still need to pursue. Be kind to one another. And in order to be kind to one another, we've got to be willing to forgive one another in the way that God has forgiven us. And overall then, Paul moves into chapter 5 and he tells us 
that we must pursue the imitation of our Father, who is the all-wise God, and thus pursue his very nature, which is that God is love. We must pursue loving others as Christ has loved us. We must walk in love. Walk worthy at the beginning of chapter 4. At the beginning of chapter 5, walk in love. That's what it means to walk worthy. And all of these things that he has listed is what happens when we walk in love. Because becoming like Christ is becoming like God. And God is love. Living in imitation of the love Jesus has shown us, giving ourselves for the good of others, being a pleasing fragrance and a sacrifice to our God. So now do you hate Ephesians 4 and part of Ephesians 5? (laughs) It's a tall order, but what I want you to get, to cement in your minds, is that we as Christians don't succeed becoming like Christ by what we don't do. We are to leave those things behind. We are to put those things off, but we are to pursue. And according to 1 John, I've written these things to you so that you may know that you believe, that you may know your profession is true, is what John says. All the things John says is, This is how an unbeliever acts, and this is how a believer acts. If we take Ephesians 4 and parts of 5 and just make that our standard, the, the, the direction I want to go in life, we will be affirming that we are believers. But if we reject this and walk away from it and ignore it, you need to ask serious questions about what's happened inside of you. Because you may think you're pursuing wisdom and you may think that you're pursuing Christ-likeness by avoiding and putting off, but you're just fooling yourself. You don't become more righteous by what you don't do. You become more righteous by becoming more like Christ. So the call that I would put out to you this morning is to understand what Solomon is saying about the way of foolishness and the way of wisdom and come to the new covenant and come to the gospel and understand what gospel thinking and gospel living is going to look like as laid out for us in Ephesians 4. It's a radical countercultural way of life that demands more of us than we are or can be on our own. But Paul calls us to be people who actively cooperate with the Holy Spirit to produce Christ-likeness in us. And in the end, the question is, will you choose to walk worthy of your calling? Let's pray. Father, as we say each week, this is your word. And may we be wise people who learn from your word, who study your word, who evaluate ourselves by your word, who learn of you by your word, and obey you out of gratefulness because of what we learn of you in your word. Thank you for these people. I thank you for their tender hearts. I thank you that week after week they listen an old man and want to know more of you. 
And I pray that you would help them and grow them so that they may walk worthy of the calling to which they have been called. In your son's name, amen.